BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So a little data point for you that I just learned. It's kind of all over Twitter right now. Goldman Sachs is as controlling interest in several Texas energy utilities. And there's one particular person who is a managing director at Goldman Sachs who could probably do something about that. That would be Mrs. Ted Cruz, a.k.a. Heidi Cruz. Yes, a managing director at Goldman Sachs who has controlling interest in several Texas energy utilities. It doesn't get weirder than that. Anyway, Kevin Camps is on the line with us, the nuclear waste specialist with beyondnuclear.org. Uh, he, you can tweet him at beyondnuclear. And uh, Kevin, welcome back to the program. Uh, the 10th anniversary of Fukushima is coming up in about three weeks. And last week, there were several earthquakes at Fukushima, apparently a, a pretty bad one, one particularly that was quite bad. Um, I wanted to check in with you and get an update on, on what's going on there and, and you know, how that might impact us here. And then also, uh, if we have time, talk about uh, these two nuclear plant, uh, plants on Lake Michigan that I know that you guys are all over. So uh, first up, Fukushima, what's going on? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, unfortunately, over the weekend and recent days, there have been a series of earthquakes. One of them was a 7.3 magnitude on the Richter scale. And some of the reports coming out include a loss of water level and pressure in the Unit um, 3 reactor pressure vessel and the Unit 1 reactor pressure vessel. So what they're doing is they're still pouring um, incredible amounts of water into these reactor vessels to try to cool the melted cores. So apparently the earthquake caused more damage that allowed more leakage of that cooling water into sub-basements. And another impact of the earthquakes was that 20 of these giant storage tanks for highly radioactive water, of which there are now more than 1,000, slid. And there was also a radioactive waste container that tilted. So those are the reports that are coming out. There's long been concern not just about keeping the cores cool, but also about what is now a quantity of over a million tons of highly radioactive water heading towards 1.4 million tons. That's 360 million gallons of highly radioactive water. And the fear was that these giant tanks, which are two to three stories tall, are so shoddy that another earthquake at or near the site could cause them to release their contents. And there hasn't been a report yet that contents were released in this latest series of earthquakes, but there was report of the tanks 
sliding, which is incredible because they're huge and they contain vast amounts of this highly radioactive water. So they're very heavy. So it's incredible that they slid. That's uh, amazing. Has this changed the opinion of the Japanese toward nuclear power? It's funny you mention that. There's a major petition campaign by Japan's Friend of the Earth chapter, as well as the No Nukes Asia Forum, as well as Citizens Nuclear Information Center in Tokyo, calling on people to um, disavow nuclear power, to call for the shutdown of existing reactors, to call for no more new reactors. And the final point they make is do not release this highly radioactive wastewater into the ocean, which is Tokyo Electric's and the Japanese government's plans. But they've never done it in these 10 years because of popular resistance, especially by the fishing cooperatives of northeastern Japan. So ever since this catastrophe began, there's been a major grassroots push against nuclear power in Japan like never before, not even close. And they've been very successful. Unfortunately, the Japanese government has turned some old reactors back on. But I believe that most that exist in the country are still shut down by popular demand. And there's been a real impact on Japan's attempt to not only build nuclear nuclear reactors, new ones in Japan itself, but even export to the world. So my hat's off to the Japanese anti-nuclear power movement for incredible accomplishments in the past 10 years. Uh, It's amazing what a disaster will bring (laughs) in terms of public awareness of things. I have a feeling things are going to be changing down in Texas uh, pretty soon, too. But let's talk about Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is part of the Great Lakes system, which I believe is the largest freshwater body of non-frozen water on Earth. And we've got two nuclear power plants on either side of, of Lake Michigan, one in Wisconsin, one in Michigan, both problematic. Tell us about what's going on with these, Kevin. You're right. I mean, the Great Lakes is 21% of the world's surface freshwater. It's 84% of North America's surface freshwater. It's the drinking water supply for 40 million people in eight states and two provinces and a large number of Native American First Nations. It's The Great Lakes forms one of the greatest regional, bioregional economies on the planet. And these two reactors, we're talking about Palisades in southwest Michigan, southwest Michigan, and Point Beach in eastern Wisconsin, right on the shoreline of Lake Michigan, have a lot in common. They're they're both nuclear power plants that are 50 years old. They have the worst neutron and brittled reactor pressure vessels in the country, the two of them. They also have dry casks for storage of high-level radioactive waste that are, are very frightening in terms of how bad they are. So we're trying to prevent the license transfer from the current owner, Entergy, to the new owner, Holtec, at Palisades. The good news at Palisades is they they say they're going to shut by May 31st of 2022. But over at Point Beach, we're trying to block yet another license extension. They want now 80 years of operations. They want another 30 years of operations or more at Point Beach, which is insane because their highly embrittled reactor pressure vessel If the emergency core cooling system were ever activated in an emergency, it would be like a hot glass under cold water, but at 2,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. They could fracture the vessel through wall. They could lose the cooling water supply. They would melt the core, and the last line of defense would be the containment, which, as shown at Fukushima Daiichi, containments were damaged or even destroyed and catastrophic amounts of hazardous radioactivity were released. So that is what they are risking at the headwaters of the Great Lakes. That's mind-boggling. What's being done about this, Kevin Camp? 
We're intervening at Palisades this Wednesday, and we do plan to intervene at Point Beach uh, next month. We just um, had a huge turnout of people for a Point Beach uh, public comment opportunity last week. And um, 15 of 16 people who spoke on the microphone during the public comment session were against the license extension. The only one who spoke in favor was a vice president of the company. He's all for it. But there were over 100 people on the phone, and unfortunately, they cut off the session at two hours, so no more people were able to give public comments. But there's tremendous concern on both sides of Lake Michigan. People are rising up to try to protect this irreplaceable drinking water supply, not just for this generation's 40 million people, but for countless people in the future. Yeah, yeah. radiation is radiation for millions of years. Um, In the minute or so we have left, uh, what what signs or signals are you getting out of the Biden administration with regard to the future of nuclear power in the United States? Well, there's good signs, for example, on the Yucca Mountain dump in Nevada. Several of his cabinet nominees during confirmation hearings in the Senate, when questioned by Nevada senators about the Yucca dump, said it's not happening, essentially. On other aspects, though, it's less clear and doesn't look good. I mean, there is going to be a pro-nuclear element to the Biden administration. I mean, the Department of Energy, for one, its its charge, its mandate is to promote nuclear power. And they do it with gusto, unfortunately. And on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission side of the coin, the new chairman tapped by Biden is out of DOE. So he's a nuclear promoter to begin with. He's also out of the U.S. Senate, where he promoted consolidated interim storage facilities, like targeted at Texas and New Mexico. Those are environmental injustices. They are not based on consent. So it's incredible that this guy is now chairman of the NRC. That's remarkable stuff. Kevin Camps, the nuclear waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. Check it out. You can tweet them at Beyond Nuclear. Kevin, thanks a lot for dropping by. It's always great having you on the program. Thanks so much, Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's uh, the true people's media, the Tom Hartman Program. Bill in Virgen's Vermont. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind? I was commenting on your friend uh, that talked about the nuclear waste issue. I used to be in the nuclear industry. I think she was actually going to expand in this country because of the closing of Yucca Mountain. All these 70 nuclear power plants that were out there built in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, up until they had the accident of Three Mile Island, where I worked for 37 years, are now having to store all their used-up fuel on site. And the only way they do it is this dry cask storage. So anybody that has a nuclear reactor in their neighborhood will soon see uh, this as being a normal thing uh, because of the closing of Yucca Mountain. And I don't know how good it is or bad it is. I'm just making the comment that we're going to see more and more of that, Tom. Yeah, yeah. And these these are basically... uh you know, bombs for future generations. I mean, you can see a couple hundred years down the road, somebody coming across one of these things and, and just, you know, poisoning everybody. Well, just it's it's about, just insane. Think about the security issue, Tom. Now you have uh, 99 different plants that are storing all their stuff, and that's going to be stored outside uh, that they have to, uh, you know, 
hardened for any type of attack so the public doesn't get exposed to any of that. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, this is uh, another thing that that I don't think most Americans realize is that when when uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed or Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, I think is his name, um, when he was planning the 9-11 attacks, the original target that they had settled on or one of the original targets that they had settled on was uh, Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant near New York City. And, be, and what they were going to do is fly a, a jetliner into the uh, either into the reactor or more likely into the this giant swimming pool outside the reactor where all the nuclear waste is stored. And if they hit that, it would spray nuclear debris, this nuclear waste debris, up into the sky so large and so far that in addition to any kind of uh, fission events that may happen there, that it would contaminate about a 100-square-mile radius, which would include New York City, and leave it uninhabitable for centuries. And the only reason that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed chose not to do that was they came to the conclusion that the that, that uh, nuclear power plant, given its proximity to New York City, must be protected by surface-to-air missiles against this kind of thing and must have some kind of a radar system to, to keep track of anybody who might want to either fly an airplane into it or drive do a Tim McVeigh, you know, drive a, a truck full of explosives up to it. And it turns out they had none of the above. <laughs> there is no security there to, to speak of. And and it's like uh, you know, Americans don't even flying, know Yeah, they ended up flying planes right down to Hudson, right into the the tower. So I mean, yeah, and instead, up, uh, so, but they yeah, were going to go down the Hudson. They were going to hit that. How many trillions did we spend on that? You know, after that yeah. happened. For oh yeah, and, it's crazy. It's 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 crazy. Yep, Bill, thank you, thank you for the call. I, I I'm with you, Lloyd in Hot Springs, Montana. Hey, Lloyd, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how's it going? Long time listener, and uh, you know. Uh, I have a question about COVID. I live in Montana, right? And just recently, mm-hmm. Governor Greg Gianforte um, lifted the mask law. And he also passed a a, um, a law that you don't have to have a permit to carry a gun. That makes no sense. The day that he lifted the mandatory mask, I think the next day the health department person of the state retired. Yeah, so I would too. And my dilemma here is that okay, I live in Montana, Hot Springs, but I work in Washington State. I'm a construction worker because it's it's mm-hmm. cheaper to live here and to work there. So when I go to Washington State, there'll be lots of people who are going to be, you know, hey, let's let's do the right thing. Let's just mask up. You know, it's not going to take your mm-hmm. freedoms away and all those kind of things. And then when I come here back home, it's like a free for all. So I guess my question would be: Is there going to be a federal mandate for masks until, you know, we really get a hand on COVID. And by the way, Montana is 45th in um, administering um, COVID vaccines. So well, no, uh, it's not surprising either. Yeah, your, your, your governor, uh, Gianforte, he's the guy who was famous for, for beating up or threatening to yeah, beat up a journalist, isn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's um, kind of like they really need to to understand, it's it's funny in Montana. There's a lot of ex-military, and at one time, as long as the government goes along with their opinion, they're for the government. But if the you know, government does against their opinion, and they're like, "Oh no, they're not going to take my rights," it's unbelievable how many people didn't want to wear a mask during the height, and it's still going on. Except, sure, the irony of it is, 
if they went to a corporate place like Costco or Walmart or Safeway or Best Buy, you're going to have to mask up to get your computer fixed or to get your, you know, toilet paper. Right. So, right. You know, yeah. I know Montana's made up of hundreds of small cities, and that's where the the problem is. But I again, um, I'll, I'll take your answer off the air. You think they're ever going to yeah. have a federal? Well, I'll tell you right now, Lloyd. I you know Biden has called for everybody in the country to wear masks. There's a possible plan to send masks to everybody using the post office, which was actually part of uh, Jared Kushner's plan before April seventh, when they discovered that it was mostly black people dying from from COVID. Um, but I don't think that Biden is going to try to pass or push through anything that has any enforceable enforceability to it, because it'll just provoke those folks. It'll just give them another excuse to say, yeah, the big arm of government, the big foot of government coming down on us. Um, so, you know, people are going to have to live with the consequences of this. One third, 30 percent of people who get covid Mild cases have long-lasting side effects. It's terrible to stuff. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Well, thanks for the call. Uh, I, I think a mass mandate would be, a national mass mandate would be a good thing, but it'll just, it'll just provoke the crazies. Martin in Schenectady, New York. Hey, Martin, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Two things, very quickly. Number one, you did a great job with Ralph Nader. I heard you on the Ralph Nader Hour. And we can get Bernie mm-hmm. to start talking to Ralph Nader, too. I think we can get some good ideas going. <laughs> Second, I agree. Um, thank you. I'm a Vietnam combat veteran. I, I, I'm disabled, and I was an air commando in the Air Force. Or in, um, out with the infantry um, as a radio operator calling the airstrikes and so forth. I almost got shot down by a Sam just catching a ride. I wasn't a pilot. I was just a passenger catching a ride back to my squadron. I was being reassigned from the brigade to the Corps. And um, almost got shot down by a Sam. For- fortunately, Major Butler, skillful flying, former fighter pilot, had Sam's thrown at him before, saved the day, and got us out of that. Wow. But I can't fly commercially. And I, I I depend on Amtrak for long distance travel. I wanted to ask if anything's going to be done to uh, bolster Amtrak. Yeah, you know I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head, Martin. But I do know that one of the biggest fans of Amtrak in the United States is Joe Biden. He took Amtrak yeah, from Washington D.C. back to his home in Delaware every single day for you know what twenty some odd years while he was in the Senate. So I know Biden's I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm guessing that that's on his agenda. You're in New York. I mean, you could uh, reach out to your senators, Gillibrand and Schumer, and ask them what's up. I'm not sure who represents you in the House in Schenectady. Do you know? Yeah, I'm originally from the Bronx, so Schumer would be the likely person I normally would talk to. Met his uh, uh-huh. cousin once in um, in Portland. Uh, she was doing some entertaining Amy. <laughs> that was really interesting. <laughs> I like him, but I think I'll try to get Gillibrand because she's from upstate. And that's where I'm living now because I can't afford to live in New York City. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And that's an increasing problem. But, you know, there's a whole level. There's a bunch of levels of stuff that we need to do with regard to Amtrak. First of all, you know, we need to, uh, in my opinion, we need to unprivatize the railroad tracks. I used to take Amtrak from when we lived up in Vermont. I would take Amtrak down to New York City all the time. I mean, there was a train that went right from Montpelier where I lived, you know, right straight down to uh well, actually, maybe it went to Burlington, 
But in any case, there was there was a train that went from Vermont right down to New York City, you know, down to Penn Station. Yeah. In fact, it was called the Vermonter. It was subsidized by the state of Vermont. And there was this whole long song and dance that they had to do in Massachusetts where they went way out of their way and it added almost an extra hour to the trip. It became like a five or six hour trip when it could have been a three or four hour trip because different private railroad companies owned the tracks. And some of them didn't want Amtrak going on their tracks or they were charging Amtrak too much or they only had one track and they were using it for cargo or whatever it was. I mean, it was a whole bunch of stuff. And the tracks were in such bad shape that even though those trains are capable of going 130, 140 miles an hour, they never went over 60 or 70. And I lived in Europe for a year. I mean, you get on these trains that are going 200 miles an hour and you can set a glass of red wine on the table in front of you and, and it's not even jiggling. I mean, it's just like, how can we not do this? And it's not just Europe. I mean, China now has high-speed rail all over the country. Europe does. Japan does. It's growing. We need to be doing it. Martin, I'm with you. Thanks a lot for the call. Shell in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Shell, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for taking my call. I really love your show. So we go back to in-person school days with kids. And we have not gotten any vaccinations. And it's a really scary we thing. We being teachers? And I'm, yes, we being teachers. Or, and I'm yeah. sure I'm not the first call you've had about this. <laughs> so, you know, if there is an active shooter in the school and we were risking our lives for our kids, we would do it every single day because we love them. But to be asked to do something that could be risking our lives and the lives of our loved ones, it just seems like there is this push to do it. And I don't know why. And I know it has to do with probably funding and monetary things and the fact that moms and dads want to go back to work. And so we're kind of being the ones pushed into doing it. But I'm not really sure. And I know that you have a lot of insight. So I was just kind of wondering your take on it. This has to do with elections, Shell. What's happening is that just average voters of both parties and, and even no parties who have kids are anxious to get the kids out of the house. The kids are driving them nuts or they need to get back to work. And, you know, schools are as much daycare as anything else. I don't mean that from your point of view as a teacher, but from a parent's point of view, it's like, okay, yeah, the kid is out of the house so I can go to work or the kid is out of the house so I can go have lunch, you know, with friends at the restaurant or whatever. And I'm with you here in Oregon. Our governor, Kate Brown, has prioritized teachers over seniors. And, you know, I'm over 65 and I don't qualify and I won't qualify to get a shot for another month or at least a few more weeks. And, uh, you know, which is kind of grating. But the reason why people, you know, friends of mine all over the country who are over 65 who who have already gotten their vaccines have gotten their vaccines is because those states are saying they're doing it by age. They're not doing it. They're not prioritizing the people who are on the front lines. Kate Brown here in Oregon has said, no, we're going to vaccinate the teachers. We're going to vaccinate the frontline workers. We're going to vaccinate the prisons. We're going to vaccinate the senior living facilities first. And all of the vaccines have gone to that. Plus, you know, Trump had deprioritized us in terms of how much we would get. So we started out behind but I'm with you on this, and I, you know, and then this is a debate I've had with friends of mine, you know, who are saying, well, but, but everybody who dies, I mean, you look at the death report every day in the Oregonian, and then they actually list, you know, how old everybody was who died, and you know, 90% of the people who die are over 60, and so but it makes sense to vaccinate daughter. all the old people. But go ahead. This could be my daughter who dies, who has pulmonary issues. This could be my five-year-old right. child who 
if after she had pneumonia, her lungs haven't healed. And now I'm being asked to put my daughter's life at risk for... Exactly. And it could be you. What? I mean, you know, perfectly healthy 30-year-olds get this and die from it. Or if they don't, if they don't die from it, about 30% of the time they're disabled. We don't know if it's a lifetime disability, but for many people it's been a year-long disability. So, you know, if I was a teacher, I would be protesting loudly and saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go back. I, but there's just enormous political pressure on elected politicians of all parties to get our schools open again. And, you know, it certainly looks like kids who are prepubescent don't transmit this disease very effectively. But the older kids, I don't know why anybody would open a, a middle school or a high school. Shell, I got to run, but thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, if you don't think that the main thing that drives the news is the television equivalent of clicks, which would be viewers, I have the absolute proof for you. The old saying in news, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. People always slow down for fistfights and car wrecks. I mean, these, these are cliches out of the news business that go way, way back. And here we have now absolute proof of this. When Donald Trump was president, whenever he held a press briefing, no matter what the subject, no matter what was being said, CNN carried it live. Obviously, it was because they thought he's going to say something stupid. He's going to melt down. He's going to create a controversy. So, hey, let's be there. Now that Joe Biden is president and saying things that actually are important and actually speak to the needs of the American people, CNN has decided not to cover it live. Now, to their credit, MSNBC is covering Biden's press conferences live or Jen Psaki's uh, press conferences. But CNN, yeah, you know, it doesn't have the greatest ratings. So I I just think this is so sad. I just, uh, Eric Bollard is writing about it at some length. It's tragic. I don't know how to 
get a message to CNN, but to, to say, hey, something going on here. Finally, I just wanted to share with you this extraordinary list that David Perry put together over at Medium.com. It's called 38 Reasons to Investigate the Trump Administration. I want to know the answers to these questions. I'm guessing you do, too. And I don't think that a 9-11 style commission is the way to do it. It's a whole nother rant, which I'll get to later in the week. We need serious investigations into these. Number one, Russian influence over the 2016 election. Number two, the Trump family's collusion with Russians during the 2016 election. Number three, Ivanka Trump's Chinese trademarks. Number four, Ivanka Trump's use of 2016 inaugural funds. Number five, the White House's blatant disregard for the Constitution's emoluments clause. That in and of itself, I think, would have gotten any Democrat impeached. Number six, conflicts of interest posed by foreign officials staying at Donald Trump's hotels and thus funneling money to him personally. Number seven, federal spending at Trump properties, especially the extraction of fees from the Secret Service and room rentals at the Trump hotels. Number eight, Justice Brett Kavanaugh's credit cards. Yeah, he had hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And we don't know if this was gambling debts or drinking debts or what that just got magically paid off as soon as he was nominated to run. And I would add to that, by the way, I would like to know why Justice Kennedy resigned when he did. Did he resign because Donald Trump was threatening his son? His son was the guy, Justin Kennedy, was the guy who signed off on Trump's loans at Deutsche Bank. His son worked for Deutsche Bank. Justice Kennedy's son. Number nine, Justice Kavanaugh's history of sexual misconduct and potential perjury. Number 10, payments to the Trump family from election and post-election fundraising efforts. Number 11, Mike Pompeo and Jared Kushner's weapons deal with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Number 12, civilians killed by Trump's drone strikes. Number 13, violations of the Hatch Act right across not just the White House and the Trump administration, but also a number of Republican members of Congress. Number 14, federal funds used to spread lies about voter fraud. Number 15, the Trump administration's role in turning the United States into the global epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yes, we are. No other country has as many deaths, as many cases, on a per capita or even an absolute numbers basis. Number 16, the decision to sideline the CDC. Number 17, the authorization of crisis funding to Kushner and Trump-led companies. Number 18, the Trump campaign's decision to politicize mask wearing as a way to help his re-election campaign. Number 19, Trump's dishonesty regarding the severity of COVID-19 and his administration's insistence that Trump knew what he had read in the scientific literature. Number 20, account of the people who died because the White House kept PPE from Democratic-led states. Number 21, the FDA's decision to make its own COVID-19 test, which delayed testing rollout at a critical phase in this whole process. Number 22, ongoing failures around testing and contact tracing. Number 23, counting all the people who got sick from GOP political rallies. Number 24, Trump's attempt to use federal military funds to sway Ukraine into investigating his political opponents. Number 25, the contents of the documents Trump refused to release to the House Judiciary Committee. Number 26, human rights abuses at the concentration camps Trump built on the border. Number 27, children lost due to the family separation policy. Number 28, the deportation of COVID-19 positive immigrant families. Number 29, the spread of COVID-19 among detainees after DHS troops flew them to Virginia so the troops could police the Washington, D.C. protests. 
Number 30, tear gassing protesters in Lafayette Park for Trump's church photo op with a Bible. Number 31, Bill Barr's shock troops and kidnappings in Portland and D.C. I think you can add Seattle to that. Number 32, the illegal destruction of documents, especially documents regarding family separation. Number 33, the illegal altering of records in the White House. Number 34, the attempts to blackmail election officials in multiple states. Number 35, the role of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in the coup attempt. It was her group that sponsored that rally that Trump spoke at, you'll know. Number 36, the delayed deployment of the National Guard during the January 6th insurrection. Number 37, capital workers who are complicit in the coup attempt. And number 38, the concealment of white supremacy in the U.S. military and law enforcement. These are all, every single one of these things, if any one of those things had happened during a Democratic administration, it would have been Benghazi redux, right? It would have been five different congressional committees holding multiple hearings over a year-long period and dragging people in to testify like Hillary Clinton was dragged before the, the Benghazi committee to testify for, what, 11 hours, some mind-boggling thing? One of the uh, debates that is currently uh, stirring, as the governor, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has begged for federal disaster assistance. And Joe Biden, yesterday or the day before, maybe even the day before that, signed the declaration, you know, whatever whatever that's called. I don't know if it's an executive order or an authorization or a female authorization or something, but whatever. Biden said, okay, cool, you've got my signature. And the question is, you know, they've got these utilities down in Texas that because of the market, you know, the wonders of the market, this whole Milton Friedman thing that they've all bought into down there, because of the deregulated markets, there are individual homeowners. There was a guy on TV this morning who got a $16,000 bill for his electricity from the last two weeks. 16000 bucks. His normal bill is $200 a month. $16,000. Because, hey, you know, the price of electricity went up. Scarce commodity. And you got Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys, this billionaire who owns one of these energy companies. And, and the CFO of his energy company was like, wow, this is like, uh, I forget the word he used. I was going to say a picnic. It was something like that. You know, this, this is just a wonderful, this is a windfall for us. Right, right. So the question is, will these federal funds that Joe Biden just authorized to go into Texas, will they be used to pay off these $16,000 utility bills or... Will either the state or the federal government say to these utilities, sorry, buddy, you're going to have to eat this rather than to the consumers? I mean, there's a broad agreement that the consumer should be protected. But how do you do it? Do you do it by taking your and my tax dollars, sending them down to Texas and paying off these billionaires who own these utilities? Or do you do it by telling the billionaires who own the the utilities, the people like Jerry Jones, you know, you're just going to have to eat this one. You made a bad choice. You didn't winterize your plants. This is your fault as much as it's the weather's fault. You know, we'll see how this plays out. That Actually, that debate is starting right now. The other thing that I just want to share with you, Josh Hawley tried to do a gotcha, right? He's, you know, he wants to be president in 2024. You know, uh, Josh Hawley, the fascist from Missouri, the guy who replaced Claire McCaskill, in fact, which is what happens when your senators are not good progressives. So when they're kind of in the middle, well, in the middle, what, what did Jim Hightower say? The only thing in the middle of the road are yellow stripes and dead armadillos. But in any case, Josh Hawley thought he was going to nail 
Merrick Garland or Democrats or something. And so he says, do you agree with defunding the police? I mean, this is a terrible thing. You know, and he went on at some length about how the Democrats want to defund the police. And Merrick Garland said, no, I don't think we should defund the police. And, And the example that he used was the police at the Capitol building who suffered so many injuries, over 100 injured police officers, and three of them dead now as a result of this crime that Josh Hawley did the fist bump there, the fist in the air thing for. So, uh, you know, the, the headlines are saying, you know, Merrick Garland leaves Josh Hawley as a hot smoking mess or a steaming mess. Yeah. Our book today is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jaxo, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to start with the last paragraph of Chapter 1, and then I'll start reading Chapter 2. In hindsight, the Fukushima incident revealed what has long been the sad truth about nuclear safety. The nuclear power industry has developed too much control over the NRC and Congress. In the aftermath of the accident, I found myself moving from my role as a scientist impressed by nuclear power to a fierce nuclear safety advocate. I now believe that nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth. Because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Chapter 2. The Fukushima accident in Japan was not the first accident to belie the promise of nuclear power. In its early years, the commercial nuclear industry had only a limited understanding of the operations, science, and engineering of actual power plants. This ignorance led to the first major nuclear power plant accident just outside Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, in 1979. Three Mile Island prompted a flurry of reforms and a pile of promises that the public would be protected from future nuclear calamities. Through the mid-1980s, it appeared these promises were being kept. Construction on new plants slowly resumed without major accidents. Then suddenly, strange radiation measurements were detected in Sweden. Governments in Europe and throughout the world soon learned that a disaster had occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Like a developing photograph in a bath of chemicals, the reality of nuclear power was starting to come clear. One nuclear accident was an oversight, a mistake, an aberration. Two nuclear accidents hinted at a serious problem with the technology. A third would cement the conclusion that nuclear power plants were simply going to have accidents on a relatively consistent schedule. After Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, the third accident nearly occurred in 2002 at the troubled Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant in Ohio. The problem is that with each new accident, all the people in charge of nuclear safety seemed to revert to the belief that this one would be the last one. As chairman of the NRC, I battled nearly every day against this instinct to believe that the worst was over. You can prepare for the next accident only if you get all the players to admit that a next one is coming, even if and when are impossible to predict. Before Fukushima, too many people I encountered simply did not believe the next one would ever come. Their view is not surprising. Accidents are rare in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. It happened decades earlier. Yet I continue to believe I could challenge this complacency. I seized one opportunity just after I became chairman. Four days before President Obama tapped me to lead the commission, I spoke at a conference organized by the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, an industry group of professionals entering the field as nuclear operators, designers of reactors, or academic experts in nuclear technology. As I looked out at the crowd, it dawned on me that many of these people had never lived through a nuclear power accident. Even if I had 
been only nine years old when Three Mile Island occurred. When Chernobyl happened, I was a teenager more worried about surviving my freshman year of high school than about nuclear disaster. The people I was speaking to were even younger. I wondered how they had experienced these seminal events. Being a scientist, I decided to conduct an experiment. I asked everyone in the audience to stand if they were born after 1979, the year of Three Mile Island. Nearly everyone stood. After they sat down, I asked them to stand if they were born after 1986, the date of the Chernobyl accident. Once again, nearly everyone stood. These industry-defining accidents have become dry case studies taught in college classes. The next generation of American nuclear power professionals has never experienced the confusion of a nuclear accident as it is happening. And so it's essential that we remember and teach the lessons of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. For reviewing these accidents shows common themes of missed opportunity, human failings, and technological overconfidence. No amount of forgetting can change these simple facts. The March 1979 accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania seems almost like something out of a science fiction horror film. The cover of Time magazine captured the national mood of chaos, confusion, and fear. The emergency red phrase nuclear nightmare slashed across the dark black cooling towers of the plant. There was no live-streamed video, as there would be after the Fukushima accident, but the public could imagine the scene inside the reactor. Just 12 days before the accident, The China Syndrome, a feature film starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas as reporters who uncover a major incident in a nuclear plant, had been released. Perhaps the hundreds of journalists gathered outside Harrisburg believed they too would land such a story. And then he goes through the whole process there. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jackso. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. We are discussing the uh, joint oversight hearing on the security failures with regard to the attack on January 6th on the Capitol building that were conducted jointly between the Senate Homeland Security Committee, whose chair is Senator Gary Peters, the Democrat from Michigan, and the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, whose chair is Senator Amy Klobuchar, the Democrat from Minnesota. And, you know, what does this all mean? What does this say? Where do we go from here? What can, did we learn anything? You know, all that kind of stuff. And what's next? Russell in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Russell, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. You know, I'm just a contractor here, but I was watching uh, on the 6th, and 
you know, from the very start of it, I said, where's the police? Where's the police? And for the longest time, there weren't any police. And then when they finally got a handle on it, my thought was, why didn't they quadrant off the entrances to the Capitol? And every single writer who left, name, address, you know, if you didn't give it to us, we're taking you away. And they had... Or throw them in a paddy wagon. Exactly. I mean, it's not like they don't have enough buses to arrest people there. I mean, you know, but look at what they did back during the women's march. Look at what they've done during anti-war marches. They bring buses in. They cattle people. They subdue them. They drag them off by the hundreds. And the thing that gets me the most is after listening to the hearings, you know, it's really, really heavy on policy and it's heavy on our training and everything. But why wasn't there at least one or two high level police officers whose only job is to gauge what's going on. And in the moment they see things getting out of hand, they have the power to say, I'm the point man. There is something going on here. we got to take care of it. Yeah. It's and on top- a conspiracy. Yeah, I agree, Russell. And on top of that, it's not like this was happening in a vacuum in uh, in Somalia or something, you know, or, or in uh, Guatemala. I mean, this was going on on national television. And still, it took four or five hours for the Secretary of Defense to finally say, okay, I authorized some help. He didn't, Chris Miller, the Acting Secretary of Defense, did not authorize the National Guard until after people were leaving the building. I mean, tell me that doesn't stink. The top, the top level people, everybody who has had anything to do with this, they need to be held accountable, removed from their job, bring new people in. Because, you know, I, I'm a contractor. If I did my business the way they are supposed to do their business, I'd be, you know, nobody would use me ever. I mean, I, I really, yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm so angry. And I'm so frustrated yeah. about this whole entire situation. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Russell, thank you for sharing that with us. Alan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Alan, what's up? Yeah, I was watching the hearings, too. And I'm a Desert Storm veteran, Desert Storm in Somalia. Mm-hmm. And my family members have had a uh, person participate in every single conflict this country's had dating back to the Buffalo soldiers. And this is really my question to mm-hmm. the veterans for Trump. I'm just curious what the problem is and also, on top of the hearings, that was a dog and pony show, I saw. That's why the previous caller was frustrated, because that's what we call in the military a dog and pony show. Trying to pass the buck and not trying to take responsibility for what's popping. And I think we kind of got a good idea. And I'm very disappointed that even people with so-called PhDs and all this stuff, uh, all this education, they want to insult individuals like this. It's it's unbelievable. It really is shocking to me to watch how individuals are just passing a buck and not taking responsibility. But thanks, man, and uh, I appreciate everything you do, Tom, and peace out, big man. Thank you, Alan. I am very much looking forward to the day when uh, the acting secretary of defense who had put out the, you know, do not respond order, essentially, is hauled before Congress. And I'd like to see some serious questioning and some aggressive questioning. This was very, very kid gloves. Ron in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Hey, Ron, what's up? The buses that were brought the uh, white supremacist to attack the Capitol. Clarence Thomas's wife, I understand she organized 200 buses. There's a, a woman from Michigan who admitted she organized buses for Michigan. We have to find out who who paid for it. Those people got back on those buses, I imagine. So the well, police hang on just a second, Ron. Bu- that was for what 
Now, Ginny Thomas's organization, the Women for whatever it was, the Women for Liberty or something, they put on that rally that Trump spoke at. They were promised in writing and repeatedly verbally that they were not going to go anywhere else, that it was just going to be a rally. And Trump came in, and I think that they planned this the night before at this meeting at the Trump Hotel, and nobody's talking about that either. And Trump came in and said, no, let's go charge the Capitol or let's march to the Capitol, we all know, you know, and fight and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I don't know that Ginny Thomas is complicit or, you know, was suckered into this thing and is now, you know, hiding under a desk someplace. I don't know. But I, do, I, I, have have a, I find out, it hard John. to believe that she thought this is how it was going to play out. This is our Schmedley-Butler moment. Either we investigate mm-hmm. and we root out these, these, uh, the financiers, the money people who organize this terrorist organization, just like going back to World War II, or, or it continues. Stop it now or it just continues. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And with Schmedley-Butler, what Franklin Roosevelt did is he quashed the investigation. He stopped the Senate investigation. He refused to have any deeper investigation because he was afraid it would give people ideas. Well, you know, I get that, but I think the people already have the ideas now. We're talking about the hearings and the uh, uh, treason. I don't know what else to call this, the treason that happened on January 6th. Heather in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hey, Heather, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom Hartman. I, I listen to your show. I was a Democrat, but I'm now independent. I live in Salt Lake. I am LDS, and I was listening to your show today, and I really think that we should work on getting people back to work and giving them unemployment checks or something, because these people are becoming homeless at an astonishing rate. They're losing their cars. It's it's horrific, and it's, it's I agree. my that, heart that this is happening. That, that's the legislation that the Democrats are going to drop in the House and the Senate, I believe, next Monday. And, and uh, I think they're planning on know, having a vote by people, the end of the week. These people, a car payment is due on the 1st. Your, your rent is due yeah. on the 1st. It doesn't care whether somebody wrote something for the 15th or the 20th. It's due on the 1st. And if this doesn't Yeah, and March 1st. And March 1st is the day that the long-term unemployment benefits that were extended in, uh, I think it was November, just before the election, in fact. I think that was when they finally got that extension, because they were supposed to expire at the end of the year, and yeah, and then but, they yeah, extended it until I March 1st. I think they're going to get really that like done, Heather. I really don't like the guy, but I agree with what he's doing. I think we need to do something about the green. You're talking about Biden? Yes. Mm-hmm. You were saying you don't like the guy, but you think we need to do something about greenhouse emissions. And I didn't know if you were talking about like your Senator Biden. Rock. No, you know, I don't. I think Biden, he's going to take okay. my religious freedoms away. And what religious freedom would that be? I'm LDS, Latter-day Saint, a Mormon. Right. So how does how does Biden take away your religious freedom? Because he's he wants to he, he probably wants to tax churches. Uh, he wants to uh, tax I've never heard him say that. He's Catholic. And I mean, he's 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 fanatically Catholic. I know I, he's Catholic. I've I know never he's heard Catholic. him say that. He and his wife are Catholic. I know that. Right. 
if the churches were to be taxed, if we were to, if churches were to lose, and, and I think the LDS Church would probably be at the back of the line on this. I think your televangelists, your your Protestant televangelists, and your Protestant evangelical churches would probably be the ones who have violated the law in that they are ad- actively advocating politics from the pulpit and therefore would lose their tax-exempt status if I had my way. Now, Joe Biden, to the best of my knowledge, has not mentioned this, but all a church has to do to not pay any taxes at all, even if they're no longer tax-exempt, is not show a profit at the end of the year. And the way they do that is by taking whatever surplus money they have and doing what Jesus said, giving it to the poor. Russell M. Nelson, which is our profit, the church has a lot of money, but the money is used and was gained by people like me who tithe. I tithe 10%, mm-hmm. and it's used to sure. build temples and chapels, and it's used to help people who are homeless and destitute. E- yeah, and even if there's no tax exemption, the church doesn't have to pay taxes on any of that money. As long as it's not sitting on piles of cash, as long as it's not sitting on a money bit. But I think we've digressed here considerably, Heather. And I, I, I just, you know, to the best of my knowledge, Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, nobody in the, you know, I talked about this a couple of days ago that I think churches should be taxed. But my opinion is an extreme minority. So I don't think you have to worry about Joe Biden and the LDS church. But, but Heather, thank you for your calls. I, I agree with you. We should be feeding people. We should be providing people with health care. We should be providing people with free education. And many of those things are the values of the LDS Church, of the Mormons. And so, you know, tip of the hat to them. Uli in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hey, Uli, what's on your mind? Yeah, hello, Tom. <coughs> we get through states. Yeah, um, <laughs> thank you. Feeling good, Doc. <laughs> good. On the 6th of January, I was talking to a friend of mine in Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was at the time when the uh, storming of the capital started. And he was watching it also, and he was going, they're storming the capital. How can this happen on a day like this when, when the certification of, of Joe Biden is going on and there's no security? This is a complete joke. And I've spoken to mm-hmm. other people, you know, I have friends in Austria and you know, family in Germany. They're all saying the same thing. How can this happen? to the most important building in America. How this can happen that people just walk in with no no security? I think it happened because the Secretary of Defense that Donald Trump put into place a couple of days after he lost the election said to the D.C. National Guard after the mayor of D.C. said, we're, we need help. We're going to need help here. Yeah. You know, there's, there's going to be, something's going to happen. And it's not like it was a secret. I mean, CNN was reporting it a month in advance. Donald Trump was tweeting, it's going to be wild. Well, you'd think that they would be there. But the Secretary of Defense that, that Donald Trump put into place issued a memo saying, no, you can't go until I say you can go. And he didn't say you can go until five or six hours into this assault. I'm with you, Uli. This was a setup. The other thing is, I'm still not clear who is responsible for sending the National Guard. I mean, like it looks like one person is pushing to the other. There's confusion here and there. I don't get it. Yeah. What we saw was a lot of finger pointing and a lot of buck passing, and I am very hopeful that we do not tolerate a continuation of that. So I'm with you. Uli, thank you for the call. Brian in Illinois. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Sure. You've already touched on on my point several times. I was wondering 
if they're planning on calling Chris Miller to testify, he seems like he might actually have a lot to say. He gave an interview with Vanity Fair uh, about two weeks ago. Yeah, Yeah. saying that, you know, he was thrown under the bus and all this. You know, even if he wants to go up there and, you know, spread some disinformation, that would be perjury, right? So, I mean, are, are they able to get him up there? They should be. Or, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, Congress has the power to enforce subpoenas. Now, there's a whole bunch of subpoenas that they, you know, uh, laid out for the Trump administration that still haven't been executed. Right. Uh, they, they are so far behind. But right. and I think that just to possibly cut these senators some slack here, Brian, it's conceivable And this is just a guess on my part. Let me just put this right out here. This is not an informed opinion. I haven't talked to any member of Congress about this. But it's entirely possible that the reason why Peters and Klobuchar, Gary Peters and Amy Klobuchar, the two uh, committee chairs who basically ran this hearing, that the reason why they didn't go for the juggler as aggressively as probably you or I would have liked them to do is that Merrick Garland who is going, you know, who prosecuted Tim McVeigh. I mean, he's got experience prosecuting right-wing terrorism in the United States, domestic terrorism in the United States. And he was the, he was the lead prosecutor. He pulled that case together. He nailed Terry Nichols in addition to Tim McVeigh. And Tim McVeigh got the death penalty for that, as you'll recall. And right. that Merrick Garland, during that hearing, was asked, will you, in fact, he was asked by Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from uh, Connecticut, as I recall, he was asked specifically, will you go above the heads of these people? Will you go to the people who were not there on January 6th, who were not at the Capitol, but helped organize this or helped fund this? And he said, absolutely. And, you know, in another moment in the hearing, there was that extraordinary moment where he said that his parents came to the United States fleeing anti-Semitism. And he has been devoted his life to public service. The guy's a brilliant lawyer. He could be making three million bucks a year at a white shoe law firm in D.C. or New York. And instead, he's chosen to take a civil service salary his whole entire life. But he said, I am doing this as payback for this country giving refuge to my family. So maybe what's happening is that Peters and Klobuchar don't want to get ahead of the FBI. They don't want to get ahead of the Justice Department. They want to wait for that stuff to come out in a way that that is based on good, solid, legal, you know, investigations. Now, that's just speculation. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But, but that, also, that's I mean, the most benign also- explanation I can come up with. Bill in Seattle. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I'd like to nominate Josh Howley for hypocrite of the year. Considering he encouraged the insurrection, how did he end up on the commission investigating the fiasco? He's a member of the Oversight Committee, and Ted Cruz is a member of the Homeland Security Committee, if I'm remembering correctly. This was a joint committee hearing. These two committees, Homeland Security and uh, Senate Rules and and Administration. So those are the people who were on those two things. But him and Ted Cruz were the two guys who voted, you know, who gave floor speeches, essentially saying, oh, yeah, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. They voted against certifying Joe Biden as president. They are major participants in the stabbed in the back big lie, which is just a clone of Hitler's stabbed in the back big lie that took him to power, where he said that it was, you know, Jews and communists and socialists who basically forced Germany to capitulate in World War One when Germany was actually winning the war, don't you know? And it's even the same kind of lie, broadly speaking. So I'm with you, Bill. 
Thanks a lot for the call. Good to hear from you. Yep, thank you. Brian in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Brian, what's up? Well, you just kind of answered my question with one of your earlier callers just now about why it was such a softball questioning in the hearing today. That's just speculation. Because, well, I know, but you kind of hit the nail on the head, I think, because I would ask those guys who has permission or the authority to put in panic buttons in these senators and representatives' offices, and then who has the authority to take them out? And who right. took them hey, out? Specifically, Ayanna Presley, yes. Yeah, so a specific question like that, and, well, I don't know. They should know, right? Yeah, you would Something think. Something like that? Well, that proves an inside job, doesn't it? In my mind, there had, and and keep in mind, there are, I believe, 65 Capitol Police officers who are under investigation right now for letting people in, for taking selfies with them, for wearing MAGA paraphernalia. Apparently, we have an enemy within, to paraphrase a, a, a famous phrase from the 1950s. And it's not just within the Capitol Police Department. It's also in every police department in America. We have white supremacists and bigots in the military. We have growing white supremacist movement and an anti-government movement. And the anti-government folks are also in our police departments. And then we've got this entire, you know, the, the Oath Keepers. We, you know, we used to have Sheriff Mack on this program regularly one of the Oath Keeper guys back before everybody realized how insanely toxic they were. And I would debate him about the proper role of government and, you know, do sheriffs really, you know, this kind of thing. But that's a movement that apparently, you know, they were providing security to Roger Stone before that. That's a movement that apparently uh, played a major role in this. And they're entirely made out of former former police officers and military. I mean, they, you have to be that in order to even qualify for membership. So I really think the enemy within is here. Brian, thank you for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 